Good evening, everybody. You are in for an absolute treat tonight. Micha's lecture is going to talk about biblical stories that you never heard about, chapters from Isaiah that you never saw, and it's going to come home dramatically to where you live, to where we live right now. It's going to be talking about how Judaism can be helpful to us in our lives now. Thank you. Look forward to talking to you about this incredible lecture. So in the book of Deuteronomy, he doesn't mention sacrifice. Sacrifice is out of the law. The ark is almost completely out of memory. And most importantly, sacrifice is out of life, out of ordinary life, out of day-to-day -day life. Now, this is a move that we've studied, that we've learned. We've also learned that this move, in a deep sense, failed. That the attempt to take God out of the temple the attempt to create a religion where sacrifice is there, but it's not extremely important. It's not the center of religion. According to Jeremiah chapter 7, the people of Israel did not fulfill the spirit of the book of Deuteronomy. They were saying, Heichal Hashem, Heichal Hashem. They were saying that in some way God does dwell in the temple, and as a psychological result, they thought that they could do anything they want that destruction will not happen, that they enjoy complete immunity, meaning a distorted theology that God is in the temple created a distorted psychology that they have immunity, and it created a distorted society where they were not sensitive to the poor, to the weak, to the widow. Why? Because they felt they don't need to be sensitive in order to be protected. The temple is protecting them. That's one move we did. Today, I want to add another layer to that. But before I do that, I want to stop, pause, and reflect on what we're doing here. We're trying to understand the book of Deuteronomy. We're trying to understand the last speech of Moses, but we're not using modern, modern interpreters to understand this book. We're also not using ancient interpretations. The rabbis, the midrashim, we're not even using them to read, to understand this book. Our move is intertextual move, which means we're using the Bible to understand the Bible. Because I do believe that the best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible itself. And we're going to make a similar move today. After we try to understand Jeremiah to ask what happened with that speech, what happened with that message, we're going to now move forward to Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, this is the second part of Isaiah, the part that scholars call the second Isaiah, Isaiah 47 describes what happened in the end to Bavil, to Babylon. This is interesting because the Babylonians were the ones that destroyed the first temple. So here's a question. What happened to the, people, to, to the Babylonians that destroyed the temple? God punished Israel 
using the Babylonians. Then what did God do to the Babylonians? So please open Isaiah chapter 47. Now this is a chapter about the future of Babylon, and this is a chapter about the destruction of Babylon, about the destruction of those who destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. So I'll read this very briefly, very quickly. I want to pick up a motif from here. He's calling Babylon a bat, a female. It's interesting, in the Bible, many times the prophets treat great cities and great empires like they're female, by the way, that includes bat Zion. It includes Jerusalem. Cities are seen like, are feminine in many parts of the Bible. And how does he speak about Betulat Bat, about Bavel, about the Babylonian Empire? Shvi Dumam, Uvoi Vachoshech Bat Kasdim, Kiloto Sifi Kreulach, Geveret Hamamlachot. You won't be anymore the Geveret, the princess, the master of all kingdoms. Isaiah is saying to Bavel, that their awareness that she is the the leader of all leaders, the master of all kingdoms, that self-awareness of Bavel. Isaiah saying, the party is over, their time is up, and their leadership is going to end. I'm skipping now to verse 7. Bavel is saying to himself, herself that forever she will rule, that her politics, her power, her control will last forever, that she's enjoying a sense of immunity, that she can't ever collapse. Ad lo samt eile al libech lo zachart acharita. He's saying Bavel wasn't aware of how fra- fragile her power is, how how limited her control can be. This is the tendency of people that are successful. Companies that are successful. Countries that are successful. They can't imagine their fall. They can't imagine their collapse. And this is the story of Bavil. She couldn't imagine that her time is up, that maybe she'll fall. Verse 8. adina. Listen. Now this is a pampered woman, Adina, that is sitting with comfort and an illusion of certainty and immunity. She is saying to herself, I'm the only one around. There is nothing out there larger than us, bigger than us, that could threaten us and end our control and our power. She will never be a widow. She'll never feel, she'll never, nothing bad would ever happen to her. And all the worst things, the horrors of life could all happen in one second. You can't predict the future. You can't ever be certain that the success you're enjoying you'll continue to enjoy. And here we're coming to the words I was waiting for. 
What gave her a sense of immunity? What's giving Babylon that illusion of control? And he says, It's because of magic. You're sure no one is watching me. No one is seeing me. Your wisdom. Your wisdom is what seduced you to believe there is nothing beyond you, nothing above you. What is the Babylonian wisdom? What is the Egyptian wisdom? Kshafim. Magic. Mysterious rituals that give you the illusion that you're in control. That you can guard your success through rituals. And you're saying to yourself, it's only me. And this is a story, I'm skipping to verse 12. He's saying to, to Bavel cynically, ask all your magicians if they could save you when God decides that your party is over. I want to notice that this character of Babylon is the mere image of the character of Jerusalem. Why did Jeru- why was Jerusalem destroyed? Because they had a sense of immunity. They had certainty. Nothing bad could happen. Why? Because of the temple. Why did Babylon fa- fail? Why did they become so cocky and arrogant? Why did they have the illusion of immunity that nothing bad could happen to them? Because of their religious rituals. Because of their magic. So Jerusalem was destroyed because of bad religion. And the destroyers of Jerusalem were destroyed because of bad religion. Now let me make a judgment. Religion at its worst (coughs) creates the illusion of control. Religion at its best trains your mind to accept the fact that we have no control. What is religion about? Is it about having certainty or is it about mystery? Is it about thinking that by performing rituals, I know what's going to happen? Or you perform rituals in order to train your mind to realize you never know what's going to happen. Religion at its best is about mystery. It's about giving up control. Religion at its worst is about certainty and it's about abusing control and using religion as an instrument for control. With all that in mind, I would like now to, to, to do something, to quote Monty Python, completely different. I would like to use this framing as what does religion do to us? Does it train our minds to understand the world is a mystery and that the future is not accessible to us? Or does it seduce your mind to believe that through religion you can know the future and you can control your destiny? Religion could do both things. Till today, religion could lead to magic or to mystery and humility. And with that question, I would like now to introduce ourselves to a new figure in this drama. To the only king in the Bible that completely implemented and fulfilled the vision of Moshe, the book of Dvorim. I am talking about Hamelech Yoshiao.
And we're going to do this by reading very briefly the move of the king of Deuteronomy, the implementer of Deuteronomy, in Kings 2, chapter 22. So in the 18th year of King Josiah, he makes a decision to perform renovations in the temple through a person called Shaphan. And they renovate the temple. And when you renovate a house, as many of the people who are watching this, viewing this know, when you renovate the house, you start finding things. You lift the floor, you, you break down the walls. Suddenly, things that were lost for years, maybe, are found. But at this story, something very dramatic was found. What did they find? They found an ancient text, an ancient scroll, an ancient book. This is verse 8. I found the Sefer Torah. So what does he do with the Sefer Torah? Verse 11, he takes it to the king, reads it to the king. How does the king react to this ancient book that was now found? Verse 11, he listens to the Torah and he tears his clothes off. He is shattered when he listens to the Torah. Why is he shattered? Because when he listens to the Torah, he suddenly notices and realizes that there's a tremendous gap between the life we're supposed to live and the life that we are living. And that gap is humongous. And he realizes the gap. But then King Josiah decides that he will be the king that closes the gap. What is the gap? What is the book that they found? Most scholars agree on this point. He found a version of the book of Deuteronomy. Actually, many of the Mephalshim and their rabbis agree with this. What he found was a version of the book of Deuteronomy, of Sefer Dvarim. So sometime... 500 years after Sefer Dvarim, they find, they find, and historically we know when this is, King Josiah was one of the last kings of Yehuda, one of the last kings before exile. And here he finds a book that claims it was written by Moshe before they entered Yehuda, before they entered Israel. So one of the last kings of Israel, one of the last kings before they leave the land, is exposed to the book, to the message of the prophet, to his speech that he gave the people while they entered the land. So what does he do? Chapter 23. So he gathers everyone together. All the people are getting together. All classes, all works of society. He's reading the text to them. 
על העמוד ויכרות את הברית לפני אדוני, ללכת אחר אדוני ולשמור מצוותיו ואת עדותיו ואת חוקותיו בכל לב, בכל נפש, להקים את דברי הברית הזאת הכתובים על הספר הזה, ויעמוד כל העם בברית. So what he does, he gathers the people, he reads them the text, and they sign the covenants. They all accept and agree on the covenant. So it's the renewal of the devotion of the people to the ancient covenant, to the last words of Moshe, of Moses. I want to stop here. I just noticed something. This is not very typical for Jews, especially not the biblical Hebrews. The story of the biblical Hebrews is when prophets preach to them, not always, but almost always, they reject the prophets. Either they ignore the prophet, or they put the prophet in jail, or, as the Nehemiah writes, they kill the prophets. They never, they almost, besides maybe in Samuel, they almost never listen to the prophets, either the people that don't listen to prophets. So much they don't listen to prophets to ask them to change, ask them to do tshuva, that when the rabbis are searching for a role model of a nation that listens to a prophet and did tshuva, they couldn't find one good, clear example for that in the entire Bible, so they had to go to the Gentiles, <laughs> to Nineveh, to the Assyrians, to the enemies of Israel, to be a role model for the people of Israel as tshuva, the story of Yonah. But here we have a story about the people listening to God's words and transforming their ways. There'll be another example of this in the time of Ezra. He will read the Torah to them and they will make a covenant with God. I want to notice something interesting before I move forward. The Bible is about the people that refuse to listen to God's words when it comes from prophets. But they have a tendency to listen to God's words when it comes from books. <laughs> They don't listen to prophets, but you'll read a book to them and they transform. Why is it that for Jews in the Bible, it was easier to listen to texts and harder to listen to people? With that question in mind, I'll just continue to understand the revolution of Josiah. After the covenant, after the big covenant, so now he's starting to reform ancient Judaism. What does he do? First, he takes all the idolatry from the temple, burns it, and destroys it. Second, because in the book of Deuteronomy is about centralization of the cult of worship, he takes all the temples that are outside of Jerusalem and destroys them too, trying to turn the vision of Moshe into a reality of the king Yoshiyahu, of the time of Yoshiyahu. And then towards the end, it says, towards the end, verse 25. I mean, now in Kings 2, chapter 23, verse 25, it says, when the text describes King Josiah, this is how it describes him. Those are three words that describe that's how Moshe is asking the people to be devoted to God. To be devoted completely and absolutely to surrender to God. 
And then the text says, the only person ever to fulfill that vision of the book of Deuteronomy was King Yoshio. And it says, before him, no one did that. After him, no one did that. King Yoshio was a fluke of history, and a mosaic island in an anti-mosaic Bible, in a world where no one fulfilled, where no one worshipped God, King Yoshiao did. What happened with King Yoshiao? What happened with him? What was his destiny? So, this great king that reformed ancient Judaism, that fulfilled the last speech of Moshe, the only king that did that, this island of religious perfection. What happened with him? So for understand that, I have to step back to give some context to this. So King Yoshiao was one of the last kings of Judah. He had a son called Jehoahaz. And Jehoahaz had a son called Eliakim, and Eliakim had a son called Yoyachin, and after Yoyachin, he had an uncle called Tzidkiyahu, and those were the last kings of Judah. But there's a story here, and here's the story. After Yoshiao dies, Jewish sovereignty collapsed. They lost their independence. Why did they, did they lose their independence? Because the Egyptians came and controlled Yehuda and appointed and they took Yoachaz, his son, exiled him, and they appointed another son of his, Eliakim, called him Yehoiakim, and he was the Egyptian, he was appointed by the Egyptians to govern Yehuda. Which means Yoshiao was the last king of Yehuda, of independent, sovereign Yehuda. So you ask, why was this great righteous king, the last king? Why was this great righteous king that worshipped God? Why was this the king that his son already lost the kingdom? The Tanakh explains why. It was because of a dramatic mistake that Yoshiahu made. I'm now skipping to verse 28. divrei Yoshiahu this is a very dramatic historic event described in very undramatic words. Here's the drama. This is described with more words, by the way, in Chronicles and Divrayimi. This is how it's described. Paro wants to go to war with Assyria. Now there's a problem. Paro, the king of Egypt, wants to go to war with Assyria, but what's the problem? He doesn't have a shared border with Assyria. Who interferes? Who's the, who's the barrier between Egypt and Assyria? Who's in between? Israel. Eretz Knan. So he has to go through Israel to attack Assyria. But he, doesn't want to go, but he doesn't want to fight Israel. He just wants to go through Israel to fight Assyria. Now, this is a problem we have in the Bible. This is the politics of the Bible. There's two great empires in the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia, Mesopotamian kingdoms, and Egypt. They're the two great empires, and the Bible takes place in between. And now it's beautiful from the point of view of literature. 
and from the point of view of theology, who's trying to say that the alternative to the great civilizations was created in between those civilizations. It's beautiful, it's poetic, it's great poetry, but it's bad politics. <laughs> Why is it bad for politics? Because when you're right in between the two great empires, it means that their wars, when they fight each other, where are they fighting each other? Right over your head. So here's the story. So the Egyptian king wants to go to war with Assyria, and he wants to do everything he can to avoid entering Israel. So he minimizes his movement into Israel. They leave Egypt, they go into, just follow me with your imagination, through where Gaza is today, and then through Ashkelon, following me? And then where Rishon, let's see on his today, right? Tel Aviv. Then you continue going north, but there's a moment you have to take a right. You have to go east. You have to enter, oh, the shore is not Israel. It's a land of the Philistines. Now there's a moment they have to enter Israel. They do that where Megiddo is. There is Megiddo today, and there was Megiddo in the Bible. He takes a right in Megiddo to enter. That's the gate into Eretz Israel. King Josiah decides to stop him. King Josiah decides to go into a military conflict with Egypt, with Pharaoh. He decides to do that. Now I have a question. Why would he decide to do that? For a scrawny, weak kingdom like Yehuda to go to war with the Egyptian empire is an irrational political decision. That would be like, that would be like Israel of today deciding to go to war with Russia or China or you know what, with the United States of America. That's not something we're going to do. I mean, as long as we're rational, you know that there, is a that there are strategic equations in the world. You realize where there's a gap of power and the weak doesn't attack the much more powerful. Not Yoshiao. He attacks Egypt and guess what happens? Well, the text says what happens. This righteous king attacks Egypt and what do they do? They kill him. And he dies. And they bury him in Jerusalem. But it doesn't end there, because now they were messing with the Egyptians. So when the Egyptians go through Yehuda, go to Assyria, fight Assyria, when the battle is over, they make a U-turn, and on their way back, they don't go, now they go directly through Yehuda. They conquer Yehuda, and they appoint a governor they appoint Eliakim, call him Yehoiakim, and now he is the governor appointed by the Egyptians of Yehuda. Which means that the person, the person, that as a result of his mistake, we lost our sovereignty, was Yoshiao. And then the Babylonians will come, they'll, they'll capture Yehuda from the Egyptians. There'll be a rebellion against the Babylonians. The temple will be destroyed. The people of Yehuda will be exiled. Where did the mistake begin? It began with King Yoshiao. Now this creates a very big question. How is it that such a successful king was such a failure? He was successful spiritually. He was successful religiously. He was a failure strategically and politically. But I have a question. Is it possible there's a connection between the two? 
Is it possible that there's a connection that the king that worshiped God, Bechol Nafsho, Bechol Levavo, Bechol Meodo, goes to war with Egypt? Is it possible that what led him to go to an irrational war with Egypt is that he thought that since he's the person that reformed ancient Judaism to be completely devoted to God, maybe he thought that means that God is with him, that God is in his pocket. If we're so devoted to God, God is probably devoted to us. And with that in mind, he goes to war with Egypt, and guess what? He loses, he's killed, and we lose our independence to Egypt. Maybe this is the third story that we've learned together about false sense of immunity. Maybe even complete devote. I think the story in Kings 2, chapter 24, is a critique on what religion can do to your mind. It could seduce you to believe that because you are so pious and devoted to God, you don't have to be rational when you do politics. You can go to war with the Egyptians because God is with us. And there is an important critique here. The fact that you're righteous, the fact that you're so surrendering and devoted to God does not mean that God is in your pocket and that God is protecting you. You just can't count on that. This chapter is a mess, is a very important critique of that kind of religiosity. And if the whole purpose of the last words of Moshe were to create a religious awareness, but you don't think you have control, sure, there's a lot of irony here. And the irony is, is that the king that fulfilled the vision of Moshe, even he didn't understand the greatest idea of Moshe. And that is that God doesn't work for you. You work for God, God doesn't work for you. You worship God, God doesn't guarantee you and as a reward, anything. The world of religion as control, religion as magic, religion as power, that world is over. And even the king that implemented the laws of Moshe failed to implement the message of Moshe. But there's something else going on here. And with this something else, I want to set the stage for our next lecture. One of the things, one of the important things that King Josiah did was he founded Pesach. This is a very important moment in this text. Saying to them, we have to celebrate Passover. Why? Because it says in that book we've just found that we need to celebrate Passover. And then it says, Ki lo na'asaka Pesach zeh. It says that this Passover, in this way, wasn't celebrated all the years of the judges and all the years of the kings. That was hundreds of years that Pesach, in the collective form, wasn't celebrated. King Josiah renewed Pesach as a collective festival. He renewed the Pesach. Now this is, I find, very weird that the people didn't celebrate Pesach, at least not collectively. They didn't celebrate Pesach. It is what it says. I know according to the Pew Report, American Jews, even very unaffiliated, unaffiliated Jews, what do they do? 
They go to Seder in high, high percentages. They go to Seder. Turns out Jews today, even very secular Jews, are more from than the Bible Jews. <laughs> At least they do Pesach. They didn't do Pesach from the days of the Shoftim. It seems like the people who left Egypt did not celebrate leaving Egypt. Isn't that weird? And then King Josiah revives the Pesach. It's a renaissance of Pesach. And I'm going to end with a question. Is it a coincidence that the king that renewed Pesach went to war with Egypt? <laughs> Is it a coincidence that the king that renewed the awareness that we escaped miraculously, miraculously Egypt, he was the king that went to war with Egypt. With that question, we will begin our next lecture. Thank you very much. God. Wow. Well, dear colleagues, let me go with a quick round. Uh, what did you think of this lecture? What did you think of this lecture? Elias, what did you think of this lecture? Brilliant. He's uh, amazing. We've been privileged to, to learn from him and to watch these lectures. Um, I love the idea of, of uh, what religion, the real purpose of religion and the way he, he sees it and the way we see it, uh, that we live it, that we are immune because of religiousness and it's exactly the opposite. I love that. Okay. Um, uh, Aliza, what did you think of this lecture? What was your big takeaway from this lecture? I liked it. It's interesting. I think I, I liked it. it, it I liked it. <laughs> okay, what's the holdback? <laughs> <laughs> I think, in general, I get the importance of devaluing magic and that religion shouldn't make us arrogant. And and here is a king who religion blinds him to the basic facts of life and his own possibilities. And I'm still like, I'm still ridiculously in the magic camp. And so it, it just makes me sad. I, I, I want to be able to do magic and religion and, and to be holding up both. And I, so that's where I'm, that's the hold back. Okay. I want to come back to that in a minute. Uh, uh, let's, let's uh, put a pin on that and we'll come back to that. Dan, what did you think of the lecture and uh, what was your takeaway? Uh, yeah, as again, he's absolutely brilliant, and, uh, and as you say, he takes what's right in front of you and puts it right in front of you. This has been there all the time, we've just never looked at it. Uh, and his, you know, I, I'm, I'm with Elias that the idea that um, uh, is so interesting that, uh, that the, most, the, the most important thing, he brings Moses' message that, that not having control is the most important thing about religion. And yet, I think if you were to canvas most people who call themselves religion, religious, what they find is the comfort of the ritual, um, of the ritual, which is kind of like magic. You know, if you do the right things, it's comforting, and it gives a maybe uh, this false sense of everything being okay. You know, many uh, you have there's so many people that say, oh, it's you know, it's God's will. And uh, you know my destiny is uh, is is controlled by uh, you know by God, um, and I have no and I don't have to worry about control because it's it's just not there, um, and and yet most of us I think also feel that we 
need to have control and that the control is, can be brought to us by having a sense of order that ritual can bring us. And that's, I think he's pointing that out really uh, quite interestingly. The other thing I was thinking that when he talked about the idea that, um, that the weak don't go to war against the strong makes no sense. And yet I'm thinking about, you know, uh, David and Goliath. You know, that's kind of the, the whole, that whole um, legend that the weak people, the Jewish people were able to be strong and that was because they worshiped and because they believed in God. And that's exactly the opposite message of what he was saying. And yet it's a core to who we are as Jews. So, so and he said we can have both. Okay, so thank you. So uh, let me, let's pivot to this magic camp. Well, will you share what you love? You love this lecture. Will you share what you love about, like what particularly struck you and... and... Oh, I just thought this lecture was utterly brilliant. Um, I think... Yeah, so what does he say? He brings three different stories, three different texts. Jeremiah 7, the people said, the temple's never going to be destroyed. Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem. The temple of the Lord, because God lives here, will never be destroyed. Wrong. It was destroyed. But they, they had come to magic, magical thinking. Okay. Then Isaiah 47 talks about the destroyers of the temple falling under the sway of the same uh, corrupted thinking, distorted thinking that because of our magic rites of Babylonia, we'll be able to live forever, wrong. So they destroyed the temple in 586. By 539, they were toast. By 539, Cyrus and Persia destroyed them. Um, so first of all, that was just brilliant right then and there that uh, the temple was destroyed because we have magic, wrong. The destroyers of the temple think we're gonna last forever because we have magic, wrong. And then, um, this whole Yeshayahu thing, Josiah, and the whole the way he weaves that story, and who knows from Josiah anyway, and he brings it to bear, and he's such a good king, and he loves God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his might, and he and he's and he's the only guy that takes Moses' words seriously, and he's such a spiritual success, but he forgot the main point, which is we don't actually have control, and he thought by and and he also brought back Pesach which thought, okay, if it's good for Moses, it's good for me, I'll challenge, I'll challenge Pharaoh, I'll challenge Egypt, I got God on my side, wrong. So I thought that he was stringing these three different stories together, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Josiah, to bring the point of a, it's a human pattern, to think that if I do these rituals, I will be protected. If I do these rituals, I will magically protect myself. That's human. It's not only Jewish, it's universal, um, and it's us. And then his challenge is that is religion on its worst day. Um, so I thought it's, we, we're, we're living in a time of such edge and anxiety and uncertainty for all the reasons everybody knows, medically, economically, politically, social unrest, morally, so much uncertainty. And we therefore want a ritual that is going to ground us and make us feel like we're good. And his point is that religion, when it does that, is a distorted version of religion, and it's not truth. That real religion on its best day equips us to deal with the fact that there is no control. That our vulnerability is, um, and th that there's no solution for vulnerability, and religion will help us deal with that reality. And I just thought that's so sober and so hard and so honest and so helpful and so urgent. All day long, all I hear about from everybody, like everybody, 
is all this uncertainty. What's going to be with our country? What's going to be with our democracy? What's going to be with our health care system? What's going to be with our economy? What's going to be with uh, the social unrest? What's going to be, what's going to be, what's going to be? And we all want the solution to that uncertainty. And he's, Micha's lecture here is encouraging us to think about how can religion help us deal with the fact that there's no way we can control that uncertainty. And we have to, and, and, and it gives us strength and grounding. So that's what I loved about it. I thought it was urgent. So I, I want to ask a question about magic and not magic. Okay? So, first of all, have, and I'll start with you, Elise, because you, you adverted to this. Um, do, have any of you ever committed the sin of believing in ritual as magic? Like you do a ritual and you think that because you do this ritual, you're like the Jews in Jeremiah 7, or you're like the Babylonians in Isaiah 47, or you're like Josiah, you think in some deep way, because I do this ritual, I am protected. Have you ever done that? Joke, jokingly, we, the two of us, we did it. Remember that wedding in... in <laughs> oh, the clergy were... <laughs> but here's the thing, it was a joke. Uh, it was a joke. We got um, there, it stopped raining. It, right, so, but, but have you ever, in a serious way, Consciously or unconsciously, ever thought that a ritual you're doing is is somehow giving you immunity? Uh, Dan, we actually all of us, every one of us, does this. We put a mezuzah in our homes, and I think when when you put a mezuzah, all of us feel that that God's presence is protecting us. Okay. Um, you know what that? <laughs> I I mean, I, for me, it's 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 a sign that I'm Jewish. Not a sign that I'm protected. I mean, I've been to too many homes with mezuzot mm -hmm. where all of the, the vulnerabilities that all human beings have, we're all heir to that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, if, if you're at all rational for a moment, you know Jews are not protected or given immunity because of a mezuzah. Right, uh, but, I, but I, think, I think people believe How many that. shiva homes have yeah. you been to yeah. that have a mezuzah? And that have, right? so, so I would what, answer the question the opposite way. Because I think, while I don't think in my life, in my day-to-day -day life, like if I say this bracha or I do this, then I will be X, I have had moments where bad things have happened and I have looked back and been like, oh, I didn't do Shabbos or oh, I didn't do this. And because I didn't do that, that must have been why. And that actually, and this is where I think it's very interesting. And you think that way or have thought that way? Yeah, for sure. You've thought that a bad thing that happens to you because you didn't do Shabbos. For sure, you. yeah. For sure. And, and do you still hold that? Like in the rational, sober light of day? In the rational, sober light of day, you know, you talk about religion should equip us to be resilient. I think there is something about if only religion could give us an explanation for why something bad happened, then I could pre prevent it in the future. And then I have an explanation where I can take responsibility. It's not just unfortunate realities of the world. And I don't think, you know, I hear it's not a logical thing, but I do think that it's a real thing and that a real thing, you know, like it's a real desire to go back and try to figure out why something happens. Would you just, and then I want to ask Elias and Dan a question because the three of us all have something in common here um, that thank God you don't have in common, um, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but would you want to believe in a God who would punish you because you didn't do Shabbos a certain way? I mean, I don't want that God. I'm not serving that God. I'm rejecting that God. If God is going to punish me or anybody because of Shabbos, I'm out. 
But like in the sober light of day, do you want to be in relationship with that God? It's going to punish you because of Shabbos violation? Yeah. So I think there is a voice in our tradition that is that voice. And that's been a lot of, I mean, in a personal level, that's been a lot of the work that I have done, which is how do you, how do you engage with tradition that says like, there's this that's right, there's this that's wrong. And then, and then wake up and be like, who do I want to be in relationship with? That's, that's a conversation I've had with God many times and, and real pain and real outrage and dear God, how can this be? Um, and that's felt like a really important conversation. So, you know, while I would say, I think there's value to adhering to a religious tradition that it equips you to deal with lack of control. I also think that, that as humans, we crave control and sometimes processing lack of control comes in different ways. And I, I would hate to throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and take away that kind of processing. I think it's very emotionally important, particularly when you are a victim of trauma or, or loss that you have something to go back and be, you know, holding God accountable to, um, it feels important. Okay. Well, let me, let me just, I, let me build on that for a second. Can I say I, something about that? Yes. Um, so a couple of things. Um, I grew up in, in Argentina and 30% of the Jewish population are Sephardic. And many Sephardic uh, Jews have a different take of many of the things that we do. They, in general, I don't want to generalize, but they are very superstitious. And my mother-in-law, for example, which I love, is from Morocco. And she has, for example, different things that she does, different rituals that she does. For example, we are having dinner together, and you ask her for the salt, and she wouldn't give it in your hand. She would put it on the table, and you have to take it yourself. Because if you take it, you become like, you know... Uh, Love's wife? Exactly. So there are many superstitious things that go around. And in my own personal case, you know, how many times I went to university and I was about to take an exam and I said, oh, please, God, if, if, if I do well in the exam, I promise I'm going to pray to you three times a day or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. So, you know, I may not believe in that, you know, in, in the magic or the superstition, but sometimes, you know, it, it comes handy. And actually, I... <laughs> And I actually respect all the people who believe in those things. You know, they, ha they have something to grab on and to grab from. And this idea that uncertainty is very hard to live with uncertainty. Okay. Well, let me, I want to I wanna talk about a ritual that I think, for my money, is the most commonly performed ritual among the Jewish people. The, the entire Jewish people from, you know, from the most liberal progressive wings to the most Haredi wings. This is something that... All, most Jews do, or more Jews do this ritual than any other ritual, which is say Kaddish for their de dead loved one, right? Um, and here's my question, and, and what we all have in common, uh, Elias, Dan, and me, we've all said Kaddish for beloved parents. Dan, you have lost both of your parents, I have lost both of my parents, and Elias, you've lost your father. So here's my question for you. When you've said Yitzchadal, Yitzchadash, Shmei Rabbah for your father, for your parents, um, what was, like, why did you say it? And specifically, there is this legend that when you say Kaddish, you say those words, you lift up the soul of, of your mother, of your father. You lift up the soul of your parents. You lift up the soul of, of my parents. Do you believe that, do you believe in that? Does that notion, uh, which is kind of mystical or magical or whatever, that, that by saying these words, you're, 
your loved one's soul goes up. Is that why you say it? Uh, or if not, why do you say it? Why did you say Kaddish? What, what was your intent when you said this ritual? Um, so basically to me, Kaddish brings me closer to the Jewish people. It's a ritual that goes from generations. In my own case, when I was saying Kaddish with my dad, honestly, I wasn't thinking about that. It was a good way for me to have my dad present every day with me while I was saying Kaddish. So it was a way of having him next to me when I was saying Kaddish for him in a way of dealing with the physical loss. Thank you, Lai. Dan, what about you? What was your intent? And you also said Kaddish for your beloved wife, Sue. Right. So what was your intent when you said Kaddish for these loved ones? So you're asking a very complex question. You're asking really if we believe in the, you know, the existence of the soul and, it, and its, uh, and its uh, eternity. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't believe, I really don't think I believe in magic, but sometimes these conversations make me uh, take a few steps back and say, what do I really, what do my actions say that I really believe? Because my actions are really going to be the teller. So I guess I do believe that, um, that, that, that there, is, there is a mystical connection uh, and that when, when you say Kaddish, you know, it, it literally resonates with you, with your soul, and that resonance, I think, travels through the universe to other souls. I really believe that. Yeah. So, please. Tell a small vignette about please. You know, the power of matching, or even if we believe. If we don't believe, I want to ask you all of you, if we don't believe in magic, what do we do with this thing? So, um, as I told you in, in previous meetings, in Argentina, the, the COVID-19 uh, measures have been very tough, very difficult. You are only allowed to go on the street if you have a permit, all right? Mm. And my mom has been suffering for the last five months, um, mainly because she cannot get out of the house. Second, because my, my brother has a five-year-old, and visiting my mom has been the, the biggest pleasure of her late years for my mom. So my mom hasn't been seen personally or hugging or kissing he, her grandson for five months. Mm. They loosen a little bit the, the measures in Argentina, so my brother was able to drive to visit my mom with his son, and they had a great time. So I called my mom the day after, and we start talking about that, and then I realized, and I said, wait a minute, was that yesterday? And she said, yes. And I said, well, that was August 14th. That was dad's birthday. Mm. And then you said, is this just a coincidence that on my dad's birthday that he's, he's the gone, my mom is able to get this fabulous happiness, happy moment? And if you don't, I mean, if you don't believe, you don't believe. But if you believe, what? Was him sending, you know, the ability of my mom to be able to see the grandkid? I don't know, I just want to put it on the table. <laughs> <laughs> Do we live in magic? Yeah. So yes, we want to so, keep that side on ourselves. Yeah, so I think, Elias, um, yeah. I think, first of all, what a powerful story. So I want to honor that as a powerful story. And I also want to honor that there are those kinds of moments, and is it a coincidence, or is it a covenantal sign from God winking behind the cloud um, and and many of us have experienced our own version of that kind of thing 
Um, Micha's language that I think takes that in is he talks about mystery and humility. Um, and that, like, who, who could hear that story and say, oh, Elias, that's a, that's a coincidence. Who could, who could say that? N nobody could say that fairly, I think, or sensitively. I think what I hear from Micha's lecture is that our tradition tells us to, to honor that and say, wow, who can explain that? That's mystery. And that, but mystery and humility is not immunity. Mystery and humility is not I have God in my pocket or I can control. So here is my question that I want to end with, which is, what rituals do you do in Judaism that help equip you to deal with uncertainty that you don't have a solution for, that help you deal with uncertainty that you don't have control over, and they just help you accept with humility and with mystery the fact that there are just some important things you don't control. What are some rituals that do that for you? I'll do it short so everybody can talk. In my own case, um, the specific ritual for me that works and has been working the last six months is praying. Hmm. You know, when I, when I do what I love, it gives me a tremendous sense of peacefulness and grounds me. You know, I may be anxious about listening to the cases and everything driving here with the radio on and the uncertainty. And then we start davening, and I really mean it, seriously. We got into the bubble of Shabbat, singing songs here, Shanae is running, you know, Shanae Kebatsim and Shana. No, but seriously, and there's like a peace that goes with, within, and I love it. Huh. I was going to say something similar, which is, you know, I get the honor of being here most mornings as well. And when I, when I get here, I put on my tallit and tefillin, but I do it, I don't do it in a place where people can see me on the camera. And I do that on purpose because I, that, I just find myself finding that moment of thinking about the rituals around tallit and tefillin and what you teach all the time, Wes, of the hand, head, heart. That, that the sense of daily prayer really can be impactful on how we act towards others the rest of the day. Uh, and so I find that that is very similar to what you said, Elias, the idea that finding that grounding in, uh, in daily prayer, I think. It's interesting. I, could, I can join you in both of those rituals, but I think one of the things that's been most grounding for me during the pandemic has been engaging with water mikvah which obviously there's mm. you can't go to the mikvah now but um i i love like taking a not sorry to the environment but like a long shower long bath or going to a body of water and i find that that the ritual of washing or washing my hands i feel like things just like come off like it's like whatever like i can't control what is and it's, i'm just being wrapped up in some divine light and and letting go and that and watching the water flow away or watching the water, you know, go down the sink or just feeling it, it feels really grounding to me and really centering in a way that um, it's, it's visceral, it's, it's physical and, and real in a way that some rituals don't feel real. Thank you. Well, um, I want to invite our people back home. Think about 
what rituals do you do or might you grow in doing? Tomorrow night is Elo, uh, beginning of, of, of the new, new, new year, Jewish New Year. Um, what are some rituals that, that you might grow in that can help you get strength and resilience that can equip you uh, to accept and just deal with the things that you cannot change and the uncertainty for which there is no answer. Um, I'll just end by answering that question for myself. When I think about uh, the moments that have been the most uncertain, when I thought, I don't know that I can make it, was when I lost my dad at 20 and when I lost my mom at 55. Particularly, both, but particularly when I lost my mom, I thought, I don't know that I can survive losing my mother. And um, I was beyond a wreck and beyond uh, dealing with such profound uncertainty. Also, she died on Rosh Hashanah, day one. So I had sermon to give for Rosh Hashanah day two and Yom Kippur and had to go bury her in between. And I found that what saved me at 55 is what saved me when I was 20. And I have seen with my own eyes this saved so many people, and that is saying Kaddish. Uh, I find it magical, not in the literal magical sense, but I find that it just revives. It gives you people, it gives you structure, it gives you grounding, it gives you time to think about your loved one, it gives you community, it helps you develop a healthy new habit. You can never go wrong in life. You can just never go wrong in life by beginning and ending the day in prayer. Just never, there's all kinds of bad habits and unhealthy habits. Beginning your day in prayer and ending your day in prayer, those are just healthy habits that give you grounding, anchoring, and strength to deal with what is and whatever may come your way. So uh, David and Brian, thank you for the live stream. Uh, Micha, thank you for the incredible Torah. Colleagues, thank you for the conversation, and may the rituals you do give you strength. We'll see you next Tuesday for our last Micha lecture. Thank you, guys.